Scripture reading this evening is from Revelation 21, verses 1 through 8. Excuse me. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has not passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all of this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts and idolaters are all, and all liars... They will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. This is the word of God. If you've been with us um, in our day through Revelation, uh, just, just for those who are joining us for the first time tonight, we're actually speeding up uh, to the end. We're going to uh, have one more week of the book of Revelation, and then we're going to be doing something new for the summer. Um, and so we're moving on a little bit different pace than we are on Sunday morning, but tonight uh, we're going to talk about the new heavens and the new earth. And I've been thinking a lot about a few weeks ago, um, I officiated a funeral for a friend of mine. Her name was Susan. I had the honor to, to uh, officiate her husband's funeral a few years back. And I remember she was 84 years old. She, she lived a wonderful life. She had faith in Jesus. She was uh, a servant to others, a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful woman. And it was the usual scene. They just had a, a graveside funeral. There was, was perfect weather. It was 70 degrees. There were white plastic chairs and a tent, and um, grass was green. And like any day, it, it was just sort of a, a beautiful, beautiful scene to remember a beautiful life. I remember watching and just feeling a little bit like an outsider. You know, here I am. I don't know her super well. I've met her a few times, but everyone who's there, his family gathered, knew her intimately, and there were many tears. And, um, you know, I'm standing there just just trying to be a a minister in in this time of of true grief. And and it had me thinking about death um, over the next few days. Raised a lot of questions for me. Where, Where is she? Is she six feet under in the dirt? Is she somewhere else called heaven? What does it mean to, to be human? What does it mean uh, to have a, are we simply just a body? Just a bunch of neurons and synapses and flesh and blood and bones. Is, is this who we are? Do we have a soul? Is our soul in our body? My friend, Susan, where is she? Is she in heaven? What's she doing in heaven? What's the shape of her future? You see, I think these are really important questions for us to wrestle with. 
because I believe that what we believe about the future and what we believe about heaven actually has an impact on how we live here and now. And if we're honest, I think our knowledge of the afterlife in many ways is speculative at best. None of us have that experience. I know some people get a book deal and write about their experience of maybe dying for an hour and coming back, and they write a book. Some of those accounts are out there, and they may or may not be true. But what we do know about death is that in the, in the scriptures, we see an example of someone who has died, physically died, buried, and then three days later, resurrected back to life. And one thing I want to be clear about is the word resurrection in the scripture, in the New Testament, it's one word all throughout uh, the New Testament. That word only means one thing, okay? That word means literal, physical resurrection. It's not like Jesus' spirit was resurrected and lives on in some ethereal way. No, no, no. His body was buried. He was physically dead, and he literally rose back to life. And you know how we know? The first question he asks is, I'm hungry. Can I have some food? Right? That's a physical question. I can imagine, I know he had great self-control and made it 40 days fasting. Three days dead gave him quite the appetite, right? The first question he asks is, can I have some food? And so what we see in Jesus' resurrection from the dead, he is unleashing this new creation. The resurrection of Jesus is a sign that the new creation is here. It's present, that his resurrection is a sign of what is and what is to come. And so we have this image. We have this reality of Christ's resurrection. And what we're going to be talking tonight is another resurrection. But this resurrection happens in the future. I know we've been talking a lot about the book of Revelation from an email perspective, which, which happens to see um, us in the millennium, but the, Bible, but the book of Revelation does speak about the future in a few different ways, when Christ returns and when there is this future resurrection. The book of Revelation gives us this vision, and it does so in, in what we call the new heaven and the new earth. And actually, chapters 21, all the way from the passage that I read, but all the way through uh, chapter 22, verse 5, we get the vision of what that future with Jesus actually looks like. Um, Dallas Willard, one of the things he, he wrote in one of his books is that humans think about the future as naturally as we breathe. Right? The way we think about what is going to happen, whether it's what we're going to wear the next day or what we want to do in our future, what are we going to do in our summer plans, this is something that we do naturally. We think about what's coming. And he wrote this, which I thought was profound. He said, even those who say it, meaning the universe, popped into existence out of nothing, do not think it will pop into nothing out of existence. I believe that every human, whether Christian, atheist, agnostic, whatever their worldview might be, I believe that they ask questions about what is going to happen after death. And maybe they don't believe in an afterlife, but I bet if you were to push comes to shove, ask them, they would at least hope that there is something. Or maybe not. 
But Revolution does give us a vision for this future. So here's what I want to do. I want to look at some of the imagery that we read um, in this passage and sort of break down what we see in this passage. The, the first thing that is, is very obvious when we read it is that the new Jerusalem that is spoken about is indeed a city, okay? a new city and a new creation. And so what that means is the biblical vision is not about the end of creation, but actually about the beginning of a new creation. It's the beginning of the ultimate new creation. He says, and I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Eugene Peterson put it this way, and I thought it was very profound. He said, the biblical story began quite logically with a beginning. Now it draws to an end, not quite so logically, also with a beginning. The sin-ruined creation of Genesis restored in the sacrifice-renewed creation of Revelation. The product of these beginning and ending acts of creation are the same. The heaven and earth in Genesis, see that in Genesis 2-4, and the new heavens and the new earth in Revelation. The story has creation for its first word, and it has creation for its last word. Friends, this is the alpha, the omega, the beginning and the end. In the beginning, there was creation out of nothing, ex nihilo, and in the end, there was a new creation that is coming. This is not some wish dream. It's not some escape from reality but rather it is the remaking of reality as we know it. He says, look, says the one on the throne, I am making all things new. Verse 21, verse 2 says, and I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. So remember, as we, as we interpret this text, we have to remember who indeed were the original audience that we're reading these words. If we go back and think about it, remember the seven churches that we taught on way back in the fall, okay? What were they? There was the city of Ephesus, the church in Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, uh, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. All of these places were indeed cities, okay? So churches located in these cities. And so likely the readers don't really understand a reality outside of what a city is. That was their existence. They lived in those places. And not only that, but remember, each one of those places were experiencing persecution from the power structures of the time. And so they're experiencing these power structures that were causing immense persecution. They were resisting Babylon's spell and influence, and they were becoming outcasts in their city. And in 70 AD, the old Jerusalem was a pile of rubble, right, from Rome, and so this is important to help us understand what John was communicating in all this. The new Jerusalem that's referred to in our passage is not a return to the Garden of Eden, but rather it's a city. It has gardens, likely. I'd like to think that there would be gardening, but it's not a return to the literal Garden of Eden. And if you think about cities in the Bible, they're often filled with arrogance and violence. And oftentimes prophets are sent to warn these cities that if you do not repent, judgment will come upon you. And these places are gathered and, and things happen that are not good. Think about the Tower of Babel when they gathered together to create a tower to the, to the heavens. Think about in our country, New York City. Maybe 
the most famous city in our country. Did you know that when New York City became a city, it was created from people fleeing from places that had a religious sort of grip on them, where, where places that were under the sway of religion, they would flee to the city, and it was founded as a secular city. There was a documentary that I watched on New York City, and one of the things that they had noted was that within the first 15 years of its creation, there were no churches in the city. Think about that, right? These are places and spaces where, where secularism took hold, And all throughout the scripture, we sort of see this often happening. So when we think about the new Jerusalem, we're not talking about a city filled with sin and brokenness and despair, but we're talking about a new kind of city, one that was completely made new. It's not an escapist vision for the future, but rather a city that is renewed, a holy city. Um, Verse 21, verse 2 And 21 verse 10, John uses this term. He says, down and out of, when referring to the city coming down out of heaven. Okay, so here's why this matters. Um, When he refers to the city coming down out of heaven, it shows us that we are not the creators of this city. This isn't just some progressive future um, creation by mankind. It's not some kind of utopia. No, no, this is an absolute new creation by mankind. God with Christ Jesus who will return, and it is a new heaven and a new earth. We're not the creators of the city. It's not evolutionary progress, but rather the city that is coming, and it is God's doing. So John gives us in two ways. This is what I want to do. I'm going to look at um, seven things that I've observed in this where um, we learn a lot of things that are not going to be in the new heavens and new earth, and then we learn about some things that are. So I want to look at these briefly, and then I think there are some direct implications for that as we look there. So, what is not there? Well, one of the first things we see that's not located in this account is the sea. And if you've been following us through Revelation, this idea of the sea has come up more than once. In the ancient world, the, the sea or the ocean was terrifying, right? It was the cause of destruction, whether that was hurricane or whether that was monsters in the deep, the unknowing of the sea, it represented chaos, And so what it means is that the new Jerusalem, because there is no sea, is that there's not going to be this fear. There's not going to be um, typhoons that are destroying cities in India. There's not going to be earthquakes destroying buildings in Turkey or tornadoes ripping through Kansas, right? There's not going to be airlines that are plunging to their death into the ocean. There's going to be no more cancer, no more pandemics, no more COVID, no more these things that are a natural order causing fear in people's lives. Maybe closer to home, no more mass shootings. No more uh, people with assault rifles killing innocent people for whatever their motivations are. All of those things one day will end. There will be no more fear. And there was no longer any sea. The second We see there is no more tears. We see there is no more um, death, mourning, crying, or pain. Look, I think all of us on some level have been touched by those things. Perhaps even in the last week you've cried or shed a tear. Or maybe in the last few years you've experienced the loss of a loved one. And you've had to grieve and mourn. Um, 
Maybe you've wrestled through the pain of a, a kind of addiction, or perhaps um, you've struggled with the darkness of depression or, or the paralyzation of, of anxiety or whatever it may be. All of those things, we believe, the scriptures teach us that in that city, all those things will be gone. He will wipe away every tear. Death will lose its sting. There will be no more death. The prophet Isaiah, uh, hundreds of years before this book was written, uh, wrote this, which if you read this whole, I don't have time to read the whole thing, but Isaiah 65 is, is, is remarkable. And here's one of the lines from Isaiah 65. The prophet writes, Never again will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days. You know, you think about the time when that was written. They didn't have hospitals in the way we have hospitals. They didn't have the type of medical care. And even still today, for those um, who, who live in this world, I mean, we experience um, tragic, tragic things, whether it's a miscarriage, whether it's someone dying at a young age, whatever that might be, the prophet says, never again will there be an infant who dies but just a few days. He continues, he says, or an old man who does not live out his years. The one who dies at 100 will be thought as a mere child, and the one who fails to reach 100 will be considered cursed. No more death. No more pain. No more tears. Third, we see no more sin. Verse 8 says, The cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters and the liars, none of that will exist in this new city. The destruction that we see in many of our cities, all, a lot of the things that lead to things like homelessness, that lead to violence, that lead to all kinds of, of, of chaos, all of those things won't exist in this new city. Interestingly, the, the two that really stand out to me are the, the terms cowardly and liars. And I think this speaks a lot to um, when John's people were under persecution in that time, if you remember, what they had to do was confess that Caesar was Lord. That, that was the, that's what they were, te- they were tempted with. You need to confess that Caesar is Lord. That was the Kaiser Kyrios. You needed to say it out loud. And there were many, I'm sure, who were faced with that. And this is really a theme over and over again we've, we've covered in Revelation is that there was this immense persecution happening where people were pushed to the very edge. And again, this, this book is a, an encouragement to say, hold fast, stand firm, because one day you will have a right robe and there will be justice and there will be mercy. Number four, there's no temple. Verse 21, 22 says, and I saw no temple. Now, this would be unheard of. Put yourself in the position of a lifelong Jew. Um, to, to speak of God but not speak of the temple would just be unheard of. Because the temple is the place where God dwelt. So for there to not be a temple, that is saying something quite profound. So it gives. What is, what is John trying to do here? It, it's almost like he's looking down each street trying to find where the temple is. Why? I believe it's because the city itself, the new heaven and the new earth, is now the temple of all, right? Because it says very specifically that God now will dwell with all his people forever, for eternity. There's no need to, be, uh, to have 
a temple because God dwells there in the new heaven and new earth. Number five, no need for the sun. In verse 23, the city had no need for the sun or the moon to shine upon it. Now, technically, he doesn't say there's no sun or moon, so there might be, but what he is saying is there's no need for it. Why? Because God is light, right? So there is no need because God is light. In all of his glory, there will be no need for the sun or the moon. Number six, there are no closed gates. The city is not a jail, okay? It's not keeping people in. The gates shall never be closed, it said. Uh, I heard one commentator believes that that's because um, he believes that people could go from the new earth to the new heavens. That's why the gates were open. They could go back and forth. I don't know if that's true, but it was an interesting commentary. Um, there's no, another implication of this is there's no ethnic gatekeeping, okay? Heaven is going to be the most diverse place on the planet. When we get farther in Revelation, you'll see every tongue, every nation will be together in heaven. It is going to be incredibly diverse. There will be those who are once at war, but for those who are in Christ, maybe a Palestinian Christian and Israeli together in peace and harmony. Or a Russian and Ukrainian who, who are in Christ together in heaven. No more war, but peace as one God's people. Lastly, number seven, there's no more curse. You remember the curse in Genesis? There will be pain in childbirth. There will be, more toil, there'll be no more toil and sweat. And in the end, mercy triumphs. So what does this mean for us? Okay, so we have this, this beautiful description of what this new heaven and new earth is going to look like. What does that mean for us today? I think oftentimes we have a misconception of what heaven is. I know I have for most of my life. I mean, the image that comes to mind when I think about heaven, I think comes from like cartoons. Like I, I see clouds and like babies and like people in loincloths and harps that are like singing Amazing Grace for 10,000 years, which doesn't really sound like heaven to me. It kind of sounds like the other place. Like, that sounds kind of boring. Um, but what we know about the new heaven and the new earth is not that we're going to be floating ethereal beings and clouds with wings. Like, we don't see any of that. But we do know that in the new heaven and the new earth, we will have resurrected bodies. In the same way, that Christ himself was resurrected from dead, our bodies resurrected and made new. We've given new bodies, and we will be in this new city. Imagine every ailment you've ever experienced, every pain in your body gone. I had a, my, professor, my professor and mentor, Dr. Hank Leatherly, once said in a sermon, he says, I can't wait to be in heaven so I can be a pole vaulter. It's something he's always wanted to do, but his body would never let him do it. Imagine for a second, Imagine what it would be like to breathe the freshest air, zero pollution, what that would feel like in your lungs. Imagine food on your tongue, the most crisp, refreshing water from a stream, the feeling of grass beneath your feet, right? This is a city on earth, not someplace in the clouds, a new earth where everything is redeemed and restored as it should be, with walls and streets and rivers and streams and beauty, all of the, just the, the, the beauty of God's creativity on display without the wreckage of sin. 
Imagine, try to wrap your mind about what that would look like. In a way, it's a new kind of Eden. This is the place for those who are, are saved by grace through Jesus Christ. And the reality is, is that Jesus is Lord. Jesus wants every person to come to faith in him, and he is pursuing those who are away from him. And so when you think about that, when you imagine yourself in this new heaven, or this new earth, you imagine a future where you were maybe building or working, not, not working in the sense of toil and pain and struggle, but working in a way that brings you the absolute perfect joy, shaping and farming and gardening and, I don't know, coding. I, I don't know. Technology might actually be evil, so it may not be in heaven. But, like, uh-oh. I don't know. Um, with that, I'm going to pause because an amber alert is a, uh, a symbol that things are not right in our world. So let's pray. God, we, we pray for whoever is uh, in this situation. I heard my phone go off a little bit earlier for the same reason, Lord. We know that there are broken situations in our city. We pray for the renewal of our city. We pray for the safety for whoever is in this situation. Lord, be with them and bring things people home safely and people to justice. In your beautiful name I pray. Amen. As I was saying, imagine a place where there is no evil. We'll be feasting, singing, worshiping, living in complete joy and harmony. Living in God's presence for eternity. Friends, that's the hope of the gospel. There is eternal life in a new heaven when all things are made new. But here's the big thing that I think we need to walk away from this. What does all that mean for us? I think there's a big implication for us as we consider and meditate on this future reality. I believe, as I said earlier, what you believe about the future is going to shape how you live in the present. And if you believe that the end of the story is just God abandoning his creation and his people and then he takes souls to heaven and that's it? I think that changes how we think about how we live our life. But that's not how the story ends. There is an ultimate cosmic redemption that is going to take place when Jesus returns. It's like, the analogy is like, why would you put oil in your car if you're just going to drive your car off the cliff? Or why, why would you um, take care of your body if your body is just a prison that is one day going to just die? Why would you... Uh, Take care of the planet if it's all just going to burn up someday. These are, these are the questions and analogies that I think help us think about how we should live on this world. Why would we work against poverty or disease? Why would we help pe people, um, children around the world, get clean water and teaching them to, to read and to write in places where that's not available? Why do any of it? Why serve the city? Why do anything? You know, Paul says in Philippians, I want to be in heaven, right? He acknowledges, I think about heaven. I think about the future. I want to be there. But I'm in this body for a reason. He says, I am here and I'm going to serve you because that's what you've called on my life. Friends, I think the problem is this. I think too many of us are running away from a world that God is running towards Heaven is not an escape tool. It's not an escape hatch out of here. I believe he has put us here 
for a reason. And when we have that view of heaven in mind, I think it changes how we see everything. It's the reason we stay and follow Jesus. It's the reason we love the poor. It's the reason we forgive others, even if they don't deserve it. Right? It's the reason why we love our enemies. It's the reason we share the gospel. It's the reason we sacrifice our comfort for others. It's why we don't build storehouses of wealth on earth, but we give generously. It's the reason that we don't hoard things. Heaven is the hope for many who this world feels sometimes like hell. Maybe you know of others in your life. Maybe you've gone through a season where life and you experienced immense suffering and difficulty. Heaven is the hope that one day all that suffering and pain will end. Now, the end is the story of the redemption of all things. And if we truly get that, I think it changes how we live now. Two ways we can go through life. We can go through life as an escapist. Okay, Heaven is this escape hatch. It's fire insurance. Right? And I think actually if we have that mentality about heaven, about our faith, then I think that actually can manifest itself in other ways. Take, for example, if your marriage is rocky all right, and things are tough, perhaps the, the husband says, well, I'm going to escape that with an affair. Right? I want this life instead. I'll, I'll escape this marriage with pornography or whatever it might be. Right? That's the marriage of the life I wish I had. Or forgive um, the stereotypes, but maybe the wife has a, a struggle, um, and so it, in, in her marriage, she says, you know what, I'm just going to um, have a fantasy life, or I'm going to develop a relationship, an emotional affair with this person, or, or, or whatever it might be, but it's always this escape on the life that she wished she would have had. Or maybe we want to escape the stress of our job, and so we turn to alcohol, we turn to substance abuse, or perhaps we want to escape um, whatever situation we might be in by, by sort of living a, a, a second life and compartmentalizing our, our faith and our reality. Or maybe it's a teenager who, um, in order to escape the stress of this world, isolates himself in a bedroom and, and doom scrolls on their phone to escape the reality of what they're in. That's one way to live life, to escape the second way, which I think is the better way, is to engage. Not to escape, but to engage with life. And don't get me wrong, there's only one person who can redeem us, who can save us, and that is in Christ Jesus. He's the only one who can put things back together, but he has also called us to participate in the amazing redemptive work that he's doing here and now. It's not just about what we get after, it's about what God is doing now. This is the kingdom of God at hand, the kingdom of God here. I'm in 1 Corinthians 15, 58. This is what the Apostle Paul says. He says, therefore, my brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. What is that work of the Lord? Is it sharing the gospel? Yes, that is part of it, but it's more than that. It's sharing the gospel. It's seeing and participating in the renewal of all things as God is on the move and doing incredible things in restoring people, restoring cities, restoring things. We are called to participate with him in that. 
the work of the Lord is cosmic in scope. It's much bigger than we could ever imagine. I mean, you go read Romans 8. It'll just blow your mind that God's going to put the entire creation back into its place. And so all the work we do, I, I want us to think about our vocation, like our job in the world, whether we're in ministry or whether we're in, in business or whether we're in farming or whatever our vocation is. Like there is work to be, there's kingdom work to be done in our vocations outside of just what we would call ministry. And God has specifically designed some of you to do something for his kingdom's sake. And so when we think about that, how are we participating in the work God has for us, in the redeeming work that God has for us? All of this joins in God's redemptive work in a way that reveals his glory. It's all the work of God. And so he calls you and me not to escape this world. Because one day we know that there is a new heaven and a new earth and all things will be restored. But this is the beauty of tension of the here but not yet. The now but not yet. Right? That God is working. This redemption is happening now and we're invited to participate in it. We weren't called to simply coast life. So come and live. This is the prayer that Jesus gave us. Our Father who is in heaven your name, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the hope of heaven that you've given us. We thank you for this vision of, of what um, heaven will be, the new heaven, the new earth, the restoration of all things. Lord, show us in our life the places and spaces where you are already at work and how we can participate in those spaces and continue to see your kingdom advance in ways that maybe our imaginations didn't see in the first place. So reveal those places to us, Lord, I pray um, for anyone who's wrestling with grief, with pain, with loss. Lord, give them hope. Give them the hope of heaven, that one day you will wipe away every tear, every ache, every pain, every sickness, and that we will be restored with new restored bodies. We thank you for your mercy and your goodness, for your beautiful name. Amen. All right, I'm going to take just a quick few seconds. I don't know if we have questions, but I will check before we turn it over. We have a lot of questions. Oh my. Okay, this is good. Um, I'll just start at the top. If there is no mourning, crying, pain, well, we not remember these things from our time on earth. Remembering pain is sort of pain itself, isn't it? It's a great question. You know, when Jesus was resurrected, we get, we get a hint, right? What did he do? He had the nails in his hands, and he showed them to his disciples. So there was, in a sense, a remembrance of some sort that Jesus had, who was physically dead and raised back to life. Do I think we're going to remember every detail of our life? I don't know. I don't, I don't think so, especially the ones that cause us pain and grief. Because what we know to be true is that every tear will be wiped from our eyes. But I don't think that those are going to be things um, that perhaps will be pain in the way we think about pain now. 
do I think we're going to completely forget everything? I, I don't know. I mean, especially when you have this example, physical example of Christ who bore his scars even after his resurrection. Now, that, that's a, a small example, but um, it's a really good question that I don't truly have an answer to. But great question. The phrase second death is used in this passage. How do you understand this death? Is it ceasing to exist? Is there eternal conscious torment or annihilation? It's a really good and hard question to answer in two minutes. But I will say this. There are really three views of um, um, hell, big views. There's the universalist view, which we would say is outside of orthodoxy. We have the annihilation view, um, which many theologians historically have held this view, John Stott being one of them. C.S. Lewis held this sort of this view, which essentially means that we are outside the presence of God, that hell is um, essentially ceasing to have consciousness is, is sort of the best way I could describe it. And there are a lot of work that's been done on that um, that is, is really well done and scholarly. And if you're interested, you can take, I can give you some authors on that. Um, but as a Reformed church, our position would probably be more the eternal conscious torment, which is a, a, a hard thing to swallow. Hell is a difficult topic. And uh, I know the Westminster Confession speaks to this in a few different spaces. I think it's number 32. Um, but yes, that is a, a um, I would say the position that probably most um, Christians would hold is that position um, of hell. And hell, here's the thing about hell. It's, it's it's such a, a, a hard thing to understand, but it is a part of the, un, the, the thing we cannot separate about God's character, and we've talked about this in Revelation, is we cannot separate his justice and his mercy. Those two things are both a part of who he is, and that without justice, right, we would not have a full picture of God. And there are many people um, who have been victims of massive injustices, and if there was no um, justice for those, like take, for example, the, the, the martyrs all throughout who, were being, who had oil poured on their heads, who were being burned at the stake for the sake of their faith in the book of Revelation. We have these, all these references. If there was no justice for that, could we call God good? These are hard questions we wrestle with. Um, so food for thought as we think about that topic. Um, I'll answer one more. I think we have time for one more. Well, these two kind of go together. Why are the New Jerusalem dimensions listed as a cube? I don't know any cube cities. Apparently, you don't play Minecraft. Um, are the streets of gold symbolic or some, yeah, gold symbolic of something? So those kind of go together. So, I, I, yeah, the cube thing, some, some scholars suggest that the cube is actually a representation of in the temple, in the Holy of Holies, okay, they would have what was described. We actually, I think, um, oh, I'm forgetting the reference. I think it's in 1 Kings. We, we actually have dimensions of that, which is a cube, okay? So that was one reference that I, I read in one commentary. Um, others suggest that, that simply, like, are these measurements, like, literal? Like, do we take the numbers exactly? And actually, um, Randy Alcorn said this in his book on heaven. He said, um, they very well might be literal because if you take the numbers, it's a massive space, right? So, like, like, it would be, like, the equivalent of, like, Canada all the way to Mexico, and, like, there would be plenty of room space-wise. Now, many people don't take that as literal measurements. Um, in the way we've been interpreting Revelation, there are many things that are symbolic, um, and numbers happen to play a very, in the numerology, play a very big role in, with symbolism. So, 
I would humbly say I don't know if it's literal or symbolic. Um, but it's a great question on the cube. I don't know the exact right answer. Are the streets of gold symbolic? You know, gold is a metal. It's the most precious metal. And it's purified to the point to where it is said to be the purest of metals. And so when we see streets of gold, it's almost a symbol of God's complete glory and purity reduced down to this, this awe-inducing thing. Will there be literal streets of gold? I kind of like to see it. I think it'd be pretty incredible. Um, really great question. Um, Matt, did you send yourself these questions to make sure you had something to answer during the Q&A? I did not. These are all from you. So thank you for sending your questions. There are a few more of these questions. Um, so I'm going to actually give these to Jordan, our pastoral intern, is going to be preaching next week. I'll let her handle them because they're hard questions. Um, but we are going to close in a, a sort of special way, uh, a time of prayer. Um, and I'm going to have Joseph, Joseph lead us through that. So um, 